But if we describe the observance of Christmas as a Jewish festival, stay with me for an explanation and also for a Bible prophecy update. The Jerusalem Channel is made with the support of you, our viewers. Thank you for watching. Shalom, I'm Christine Darg. Recently, Israel Today magazine published an article by Charles Gardner stating that not only is Hanukkah a Jewish festival celebrated on Western calendars in December, but Christmas should also be considered a Jewish festival of a Jewish Messiah. But hold on, I'm very aware this is a controversial subject amongst Bible believers who are into the Hebrew Roots movement. But at least one church leader in Jerusalem, Aaron Ami, claims that December the 25th, long thought to be a date corresponding to winter pagan festivals, was perhaps deliberately chosen by early Jewish believers as quite possibly the right time to celebrate history's most famous birth. Considering when to remember the incarnation of the Messiah when God entered human flesh, the first Jewish disciples, in fact, already had a suitable holiday, the Jewish festival of dedication, known as Hanukkah, and also known as the festival of lights. Hanukkah commemorates the restoration of light to a dark world when Jerusalem's temple was rededicated. On the Hebrew calendar, on the 25th of Kislev, that's in December on the Gregorian calendar, but with only a single jug of oil that would last for just one day, the temple menorah miraculously kept on burning for eight days. Thus, a Hanukkah menorah called a Hanukkah has eight branches with a holder for a ninth candle, which is called the servant candle, to light the others. For Christians, the servant candle represents the servant king Jesus. Yeshua is his Hebrew name. Whether we're talking about the usual seven-branch menorah or a commemorative Hanukkah, the menorah is surely a picture of the light of the world, as Jesus described himself in John 8:12. Jesus, Yeshua, was sent by God to rescue his people from their sins, just as less than two centuries earlier, the Jewish Maccabees were the Hebrew deliverers of their people who fought against Hellenistic assimilation. It's often been pointed out within evangelical circles that Jesus attended the Hanukkah festival. He was present in the temple courts at the feast of the temple's dedication celebration because the Gospel of John, chapter 10, informs us that at the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, it was winter. And Jesus was walking, where? The text says, in the temple courts, in Solomon's porch. In fact, in Acts 5.12, Solomon's porch is identified as the gathering place for believers in Jerusalem before the diaspora. And at Hanukkah, the Jewish people gathered around Jesus and demanded to know, how long will you keep us in suspense? 
If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. And he answered, I've already told you, but you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify on my behalf, he said. And while they were disputing with him, Yeshua reasoned, saying, Even though you do not believe me, believe the works that I do. And he pointed to them all of the miracles he had been performing. He said, Believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So his messianic claims to divinity were made in the temple courts during Hanukkah. Jesus, Yeshua, also referred to himself in John 2.19 as the temple that would be raised up on the third day. And according to Aaron Emmy, a deacon at Jerusalem's Christ Church, the church we attend, there is plenty of evidence to suggest that this time of year in December is the time to celebrate the incarnation and the birth of Messiah. Because Aaron has studied many years with rabbis in Jerusalem, he notes that the sages have a tradition that godly heroes die on the same day they were born. For example, they say Moses died on his 120th birthday. And in Jesus' case, Aaron suggests, some scholars say there is evidence he was conceived at Passover and that he died, of course, as the Lamb of God, at Passover, which means that it was highly probable that Yeshua would have been born in the bleak midwinter, as a Christmas carol says, not during the Feast of Tabernacles, as many scholars teach. Those arguing for the Lord's birth during the fall, during the Feast of Tabernacles, point out that the shepherds would surely have not been watching over their flocks in the cold at night. So we can't say for sure, but I've noticed that a lot of believers who celebrate the Levitical festivals of the Lord are not opposed to celebrating the biblical elements of the Christmas holiday, such as the nativity itself and the important doctrines of the virgin birth and the incarnation. That doctrine means God taking on human flesh. Many of these evangelicals are also learning to incorporate much of the imagery of Hanukkah into their Christmas celebrations, since, after all, Hanukkah is biblical, as I said, mentioned in John chapter 10. Well, conveniently, this year, the eight days of Hanukkah perfectly converge with the Western Christmas holiday. Aaron explained that believers should appreciate the fact that the Christmas holiday is not about commercialism, of course, but it's all about the redemption and birth of Messiah and glorious earth-changing events such as the birth of the world's only Savior should be celebrated. In his talk, Aaron quoted early Christian sources, including the Didache, which is a collection of the Lord's teachings through the Twelve Apostles to the Nations. He also cited the apocryphal books of the Maccabees, which are not regarded as inspirational scripture by Protestants, but nevertheless, the books of the Maccabees are accepted in the canon of Scripture by millions of Eastern and Orthodox Christians. Hanukkah beautifully illustrates how God brought light into darkness during the time of the Maccabees. 
And here's a little background to Hanukkah. The tyrant Antiochus Epiphanes was a Greek Hellenistic king who ruled the Seleucid Empire, and he had ruthlessly imposed Greek culture on the Jewish people. By the way, eschatologists who studied the end times see him as a forerunner, a type of the Antichrist, to come because he shockingly committed an abomination by sacrificing a pig on the temple altar on the 25th of Keslev, the same day the temple was cleansed and rededicated a few years later through the exploits of the godly Jewish Hasmonean priests known as the Maccabees. They led a successful revolt and cleansed the temple. Now, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 and verses 14 and 15, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, so that it gives light to all who are in the house. Our life should be a testament of God's love, mercy, grace, compassion, His power, strength, and peace to those who are lost in darkness, searching for the light. Jesus added in Matthew 5, 16, So let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works, and glorify your Father who is in heaven. For those who follow the fulfillments of Bible prophecies, and every believer should, I want to remind you that Hanukkah was a time when God had the backs of his Jewish people and he defended them, keeping them as a nation so that Messiah could enter this world. Let's not forget that it was in December 1917, during the season of Hanukkah, when the Ottoman forces surrendered Jerusalem to General Allenby and the British Empire Army, thus preparing the way for the modern state of Israel to become a reality and fulfillments of Bible prophecies. Also, let's not forget that President Donald Trump's 2017 declaration to relocate the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem took place during the Hanukkah Christmas season. Sadly, however, I now want to give a Bible prophecy update the nations still have not comprehended the great prophetic work that God is doing in our day. Shockingly, at the UN, a pro-Palestinian resolution lamenting Israel's birth was recently passed, 90 to 30. The Israeli envoy, Gilad Erdan, blasted the new move as a disgrace. And to try to counter the anti-Semitic move, he unveiled a display about Jewish expulsions from Mideast countries. So taking their cue from the Arabs, the UN voted to hold an event that will commemorate the establishment of the Jewish state as a so-called catastrophe. In a majority vote, as I said, 90 member countries voted in favor of the move, with 30 nations dissenting and 47 abstaining from the vote. The United States, the UK, and most of the European Union came out against the proposal. The initiative was sponsored by Egypt, Jordan, Senegal, Tunisia, Yemen, and the Palestinians. Other countries that voted against calling Israel's birth a catastrophe 
were Australia, Austria, Canada, Denmark, Germany, Greece, Hungary, Italy, and the Netherlands. The word catastrophe is Nakba in Arabic, and the Palestinian Arabs use the term Nakba to refer to Israel's establishment in 1948. And their Nakba Day is observed annually by Arab Palestinians on May 15th, the day after Israel's independence. When the British mandate expired in 1948, allowing Israel to announce the formation of a Jewish state and its independence. However, now the Palestinians claim that day as a time of mourning. The UN's Division for Palestinian Rights of the Secretariat is responsible for organizing the upcoming event to be held at the UN headquarters in New York. Israel's permanent representative to the UN, Gilad Erdan, has called the resolution extreme and baseless. Meanwhile, Erdan is asking the UN to acknowledge the Jewish Nakba. That's a day that acknowledges at least 750,000 Jews were expelled from their homes in Arab countries and in Iran since 1947. In fact, Israel has established November the 30th as its own Nakba Day to commemorate the expulsion of Jews and their dispossession from many Middle Eastern countries. Where else could they have gone but to the only Jewish state in the world? So it's become like a broken record how the United Nations always bashes Israel. Can you imagine in, for example, Isaiah 19, God calls the regathered nation of Israel a blessing in the midst of the earth. Yet, most of the world community in the UN will be foolishly calling God's act by reestablishing Israel a catastrophe. Think of the implications of that. But is this not what the prophet Zechariah teaches? That all nations will come against Jerusalem? The mere fact that Israel is a nation again is like a slap in the face to every other religion and verifies this prophetic word of God. Texas pastor Andy Woods, a great eschatologist and Bible teacher, says the rebirth of Israel was like D-Day for so-called replacement theology. That's the erroneous belief that all the prophecies concerning Israel's future were just allegorical and those promises were transferred to the church and that God really has no future for Israel. That's the error of replacement theology. But when in fact the nation of Israel came back into existence miraculously, after 2,000 years, that Augustinian replacement theology going back to the 4th century couldn't be correct after all, could it? And unfortunately, it's not just the nations that hate the reborn state of Israel. It's a lot of unbelieving theologians who refuse to acknowledge the miracle of Israel's regathering. Yet, God said to the prophet Zechariah in chapter 12, in verses 2 and 3, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples. Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem. On that day, he said, when all the nations of the earth gather against her, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. And all who would try to heave it away, God says, 
will be severely injured. Meanwhile, a disturbing trend that all Bible prophecy watchers must notice is the new tactic in trying to cover up anti-Semitism. The idea is being constantly pushed now that it's okay to be an anti-Zionist. But anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism are virtually one and the same thing. Israel Today magazine recently published an article by Jared Tanney, 10 Reasons Why Anti-Zionists Are Anti-Semites. And unfortunately, the article noted that Zionists are the new Moranos. Let me explain that term. During the late Middle Ages, a Murano was a Spanish or Portuguese Jew forced into conversion to Christianity under threat of death or persecution, but they continued in secret to adhere to their Jewish faith and practices. Zionism is most definitely a move of God calling for the return of the Jewish people to their ancient homeland. However, increasingly, since 1948, Anti-Zionists have been grossly mischaracterizing Zionism. Anti-Semites have been rewriting the narrative and branding Zionism as European imperialism, implying racist links and oppression. Before 1948, Jews were not subjected to litmus tests over their views on Zionism. But, since 1948, their Zionism has been increasingly questioned and challenged, first in the Soviet Union, then in most of the Arab world, and now amongst the academic and activist left. Unfortunately, tragically, it's now come to this. The Jews today must either hide their Zionism or somehow publicly renounce Israel. Otherwise, Jews are shamed and excluded from numerous public spaces. So that's why Zionists are the new Moranos. The imagery and rhetoric deployed by anti-Zionists is virtually identical to those used by pre-Holocaust anti-Jewish movements. The tactics of boycott, divestment, and sanctions entail actions against 50% of the world's Jews which means this is discrimination against a collective of millions of individuals simply because of their ethno-national background and where they happen to have been born. This, of course, is flat-out racism. In fact, the Jews are the only nation whose self-determination is being singled out and denied, even negated decades after self-determination was achieved and long after the UN recognized Israel's independence. No other nation has to justify its right to exist on a daily basis. Well, Jared Tanney stated in his article that most countries do reprehensible things from time to time. But the anti-Zionist left paints a false picture of the Jewish state being uniquely reprehensible. And that's a double standard. Double standards constitute bigotry. Furthermore, Tanny, who is an associate professor in Jewish history, wrote that tragically, the world continues to view the Jew as a pariah, which has been the norm in Western Christendom for over 1,500 years. And because of this continuing satanic 
propaganda against God's chosen people. Many Jews and Israelis have awakened to the importance of, lo and behold, Christian Zionism, meaning Christians who support the Jewish state and who believe in this Bible and in the Jews' right to self-determination. It's fascinating that many Jews in Israel now are more comfortable with some of the views of evangelical Christians than their own brethren. In fact, there's growing dissonance between American and Israeli Jews. The Jews in the diaspora are much more liberal and are wary of conservative religious political trends in Israel. And with American Jewish leaders expressing disapproval of Israel's new government, the Jewish state's relationship with Christians is more important than ever. And that's according to journalist Erit Tratt in the Jewish News Syndicate. Israel's long-standing Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has spent many years cultivating connections between Israel and the evangelical community. And he often tells evangelicals that we are Israel's best friends. Indeed, Netanyahu previously addressed us at a Christian media summit in Jerusalem. That's an annual conference designed to strengthen Israel's relations with Christians. While over half of American Christians backed former President Donald Trump's 2017 relocation to the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem, only 16% of American Jews did so, according to one poll. Since Christians reportedly comprise over 60% of the U.S. population, it makes both demographic and political sense for Israel to nurture its alliance with evangelicals. In fact, Israeli tourism figures released before the COVID-19 pandemic show that Christians constitute over half of Israel's foreign visitors. And this figure will likely increase with Israel's Ministry of Tourism introducing initiatives to lure Christians to the Holy Land. During the Trump administration, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and Vice President Mike Pence repeatedly pointed to the link between their Christian faith and their affinity with the Jewish people. Interesting that evangelicals remain the most ardent custodians of the U.S.-Israel bond. By contrast, American Jewish organizations often express public disapproval of Israel's unwillingness to placate their pluralistic demands. The Jewish establishment in the West seems more concerned with defending progressive ideologies than protecting Jewish interests, including vital security interests for sure. Many pundits are pointing out the sad reality that among many liberals in the West, if you dare to say a word that is not politically correct, the mob will demand your head. Canceling people over one wrong word has become very American, and unfortunately, it has also taken hold in Britain. The trouble with the left has always been intolerance. As Bible believers, we are instructed to be both inclusive of everybody and also exclusive. So I'd like to address these important issues for a few minutes. On the one hand, as David Longworth pointed out in a Prophecy Today magazine, equity and inclusion are core principles in Scripture. Leviticus 19.18 was underscored by Jesus 
We are not merely called to love. We are commanded, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus added in Matthew 5, 44, love your enemies, bless those that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you. Concerning justice and judgment, God is inclusive of everybody. In Acts 17.30, God commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day when he will judge the world. Also inclusive is Romans 3.23. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The call of the gospel for salvation, thankfully, is inclusive of everybody as stated in Romans 10, 13, that whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Yet, there is always balance in this word. The gospel is also exclusive, that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, Jesus said. And Luke 13, 5 states, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So inclusion or exclusion is based entirely on our choices, whether we accept or reject the Savior and his words. Scripture also speaks of the exclusive nature of the church, the ecclesia in Greek, meaning the called out people of God. Although we are commanded to share the gospel with all people as we're led by the Holy Spirit, nevertheless, we are commanded not to be unequally yoked or to be bound together with unbelievers. Rather, we are commanded in 2 Corinthians 6.17 to come out from amongst them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean. And he said, I will receive you. Let's also desire to be humble like the thief who died on a cross next to Jesus and said, Lord, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And to that repentant thief, Jesus promised, This day shalt thou be with me in paradise. So Lord, just tell him, I want to be a believer. You see, soon Jesus will have returned, and then it's going to be too late to receive him. But if you will invite the Savior into your life now, he will enter in and become your best friend, the good shepherd, to guide you safely through these troublesome times. Amen. Well, there's much more to this topic, one of many we explore on our website, exploits.tv, which continually reports on Bible prophecy and end-time events relating to the church and Israel. We invite you to sign up for our free electronic magazine, Exploits, at our website and at our Jerusalem Channel app, as well as our Jerusalem Channel YouTube site, we have uploaded a library of videos available for you 24-7. Well, friends, as all the pages of the Bible declare, the kingdom of God is at hand. I'm listening for the sound of the shofar. The great day of the Lord is drawing near, and soon we're going to see King Yeshua. In the meantime, Daniel 11.32 declares, the people who know their God will be strong, not weak, and we're going to do exploits, meaning that you and I will accomplish the works of the Lord before his imminent return. Have any questions? Feel free to contact me at the website or on social media.
May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the Messiah, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Until next time, I'll always be contending for the faith and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem. I'm Christine Dark. Shalom and Maranatha. Sail Away by Christine Dark. 44 years ago, Christine and her husband Peter sold all their possessions to buy tickets on a round-the-world voyage, exploring the Caribbean onto South America, across the Atlantic to South Africa, then onto India, Sri Lanka, Singapore, Hong Kong, and Communist China, and finally Japan and Hawaii. The exploits of that three months at sea are recalled in Christine's new audiobook, Sail Away. Set sail with more than three and a half hours of exploring the world. Sail Away by Christine Darg is now available to download from the audible.com website. So enjoy a voyage of spiritual discovery as you listen to Christine read Sail Away, discovering the Holy Spirit on a world cruise.